All right. See, we have left everything and followed you. Sorry, Keith, I'm going to disrupt your structure there just a little bit. Claustrophobia. See, we have left everything and followed you. Verse 28 starts with a contrast in Peter's mind. What I've lost and what I currently have. And the question that sets over this doesn't just emerge out of nowhere, right? We're going through Mark together. And as we're going through Mark together, we're in a conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples, but also that that Mark is, is having with those who are reading, and today that the Holy Spirit has been having with us over a series of weeks. The question that we have to ask is, can we ever outgive God? Do we ever make sacrifices that leave God in our debt? And theologically, musically, guys, I know we know absolutely not. There's no way we would sing a song or allow it that somehow presented God as being, you know, obligated to us. God, aren't you impressed that we're so great? There's more than one reason that we don't sing that. But it comes in this context. Verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? You remember from last week why the disciples were so astonished? Because in their day, the rich were blessed by God and therefore were going to heaven. That was the sign. The poor were cursed by God, not favored by God. Those who were having troubles were on God's bad side. Those who were doing well were on God's good side. And isn't it great that we don't believe that today? Nah, come on, you believe it, right? You do. You come in and you, we, we do it in every group we're in. We've been doing it in this church for years. We rank who's doing well with God based on who's doing well in life. We make an equation between somebody else's prospering in the sense that somehow God is favoring them because of that prosperity. It's the lie of the Bible. It's the lie of our day. It's the lie of our church. And we have to fight against it all the time. Sorry, guys. This is just like what you tell your kids when you go out to the beach, right? You go... Hey, I want you to keep sight of my towel. Why? Because as soon as you get in the water, it is going to pull you down the shore. And if you're not careful, you're going to be playing for a while, and it's going to pull you so far away from where we are that you'll get lost. Guys, we get lost in the world all the time because the current pulls us in that direction. God loves the prosperous. God favors those who are doing well. And how you're doing in this life is a sign of how God views you. It's so hard to push against. It's not new to us. This is exactly why the disciples were astonished. Because Jesus had just had an interaction with a rich young man who decided he didn't want to follow Jesus anymore because he had to give up his wealth. It wasn't just that he loved money, though that was a problem. It was also that he loved the status that money gave him, not just in the world, but in the kingdom from his perspective. See, I've done all this for you. Can I have eternal life yet? You're missing one thing. Get rid of your wealth. Give it all away. Then come follow. Can't do it. Jesus says it is difficult. It is exceedingly difficult. They were amazed. They were exceedingly astonished. And we ought to be too. Frankly, if we're just approaching this text, because we've heard it before, little yawning our way through it, man, guys, this needs to wake us up. 
Jesus over and over and over for these last few weeks has been trying to wake us up so that we don't live this life trying to be in first place. We don't live this life trying to make ourselves super comfortable right now. He's been trying to get our attention. The question for our church is, have we been paying attention? Have we been paying attention when God has been talking to us? So they're astonished. And Jesus said, looked at them and said, People don't get saved the way you think. With man, it's impossible. God does the impossible, though, so it is possible with God. And Peter hears this, and that's when he delivers it out. Look at us, God. Look at what we've given up. We've got you, but we've given up everything. And sometimes, more often than we like to admit, we're just like Peter, aren't we? We do the risk-reward thing. We see what we've risked. We see what we've lost. We see what we've invested, and we wonder, where's the return? What are we going to get for what we've given up? I've lost everything, and all I've got right now is you. And Peter's not wrong, right? Let's go back in Mark. Peter, it said, Mark, Mark 1, verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. A little further on. Going on a little farther, Verse 19, he saw James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Think about Zebedee for a second. He's supposed to hand over what's been handed over to him. The nets and the boats and the wealth and the established business. It's come to him probably from Zebedee's dad. It's supposed to go to Zebedee's sons. And by the time Jesus shows up, he's left with the servants. And if you don't get that, go back and reread how God interacts with Abraham in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Where Abraham's like, who will be my heir? All I've got is Eleazar. I got to have a kid. I got to have a kid somewhere because I received and somebody's got to receive from me. And Zebedee's left with the servants. That's it. Stuck in the boat. Peter's not wrong. So what I want you to do before we even start is ask yourself, what have you had to give up? Because you follow Jesus. Now, this is going online. I'm sure Michael can help me clip this, but I'm going to tell a story about Jace. This is a good one, buddy. Don't worry. It's also less than a day old. Jace came back from work and got getting picked on a bit. He's getting kind of, you know, ripped. And it's not really because of Jace. It's not because of something he was doing. It's just because this is the way that this guy interacts. He's kind of led some group of people. And Jace admittedly came in from work and was really angry. <laughs> and it, we didn't get to say this, and so I want to say this now. You were suffering for Jesus last night. Because if you weren't a Christian, what you would have done is you would have cussed this guy out. You would make him look like an idiot in front of the group, but you didn't do that because you followed Jesus. It's the part I should have told you last night, and I didn't tell you that. And I'm sorry I didn't tell you that, because... We suffer for Christ 
as believers probably more often than we know. The number of things you don't do, haven't chosen to become because of Jesus, has left you suffering. Now, same as first century suffering? No, probably not. You want to understand first century suffering, let's go visit Tirtha in Nepal. Let's understand that when you convert to Christ, you lose your inheritance, your family standing, and probably your place at Thanksgiving. You get nothing. You've left everything. If I preach this in Nepal, and I'm, I'm not making promises here, Barb, all right? <laughs> if I preach this over Zoom to those in Nepal, probably a little bit more accurate, they're going to be able to say, yeah, we, we know exactly what you're talking about. This is us. 2,000 years later, this is still us. Now, it's hard for us, right? Because we live in a Christianized, less and less every year, but we live in a Christianized culture. At least the a culture that has the echoes of the values of Christianity, even though they've ripped Christ out of all of it. And so we will increasingly suffer like this. Not yet to the point that they are in Nepal, and not certainly to the point that that Peter and James and John and Andrew had. But Jesus is making a promise here, and we need to unpack the promise. We need to unpack the who, the what, and the why of the promise. And when we do, I think, think all of us are going to come away and say, I don't get it. Because I've studied this for a while, and I just want to let you know, I don't get it. I feel like I know what I'm supposed to get, but I don't get it. So just no illusions here. I am preaching a half-baked message to you because I want to live this, and I'm trying, but it's really, really hard. It's really hard. So let's, let's unpack this promise together. Start in verse 29. Jesus is listening to Peter. He is responding to Peter, and he gives the who of a promise, and it starts in verse 29. Here's the who. Truly, I say to you, amen, he says, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Hear what the who are. The who are the losers. They've lost things. The who are the left behind or those who have left others behind. The who are not richer immediately for following Christ. And don't move on to everything. Get the who. All right? Get the who. No pity party necessarily, but understand what this is. The people that are supposed to be the recipients of this promise are those that have not kept their homes or their connections with their families or their children and what they would be able to enjoy, or their lands. You want a modern-day equivalent of this? Think about Jim and Tony Kay, who were talking to us from Esperanza Diana. He had the life that we are aspiring to. She had the life that we are aspiring to. They, as a couple, were doing well, and at 52, they realized we need to let it go, and we need to go over there and not be here when our grandchildren are born. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Listen, though, to the way that culturally this would kind of like carry itself across. Because I think we, we hear house and we think physical house. And it's true. I think the word house has just broader connotations in Scripture. And it, um, think about a moment in, um, in a conversation. I referenced this a little bit ago where David was going to build a temple for God. Right? And God's like, yeah, I really don't need your temple. 
I'm doing okay. Trust me, heaven's fine. I don't need a dwelling place here on the earth. I'm doing all right. But after that conversation, then God says this. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. That was the first part of the response. Second part of the response, though, is a promise made to him. And I have cut off all your enemies. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. David's burden. God, you've been moving around all the time. God's like, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm super established. It's really okay. But I am going to plant. I am going to place. I am going to settle my people down and let them grow some roots. So thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Is David getting a temple? No, that's not what the promise in 2 Samuel 7 is all about. When God says, you don't have to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. What he's talking about are his brothers, sisters, mother, father, and in particular, David's point, his children. I'm going to establish your house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. You see, for David, having his house established didn't mean that he was going to then, you know, just have a big temple. He got a big temple. But that wasn't exactly the, the point. It wasn't exactly the promise. The promise that really came to David was that when you think about what is going to have you established and settled and feeling at home here, I'm going to do that for you. That's going to be your house, David. Guys, don't you want this? Yeah, retirements and pensions and savings accounts and all those things are good, but is what you really just kind of long for in this life to just sort of feel settled with your people, settled with your kids and your relatives and let everything just kind of be right. When you've been in those moments, it's, it's just like everything sings. That's what Peter's saying. We left for you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yes, I know. And I'm making a promise to you, and everybody else like you who's done exactly that. Everybody who's left behind your families. But there's also a second part. It's not that you just did that for a job or that you left everybody behind because you got a promotion or you went to college or something along those lines or because you got in a conflict. Right? You, can't, you can't blame this on you don't get along well with your family. All right, this, that's, this isn't the promise for family conflict. All right. It's that you've left these things, he says, at the end of verse 29, for my sake and for the gospel. And this is my point to Jace. My point now, point that I should have made last night. There are times that we make decisions costing us more than we think, and we're doing it because we follow Jesus. This isn't the first time Jesus has used this language in Mark either. 
He said just a little bit ago, a couple chapters ago, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, there's a phrase again, right? For my sake and for the gospels. So we got to hear this all in context. We've already heard that, that following Christ comes freely because of the precious blood of Jesus, right? We, we just sang that. But receiving that gift then costs you everything. This is, this is a profound paradox, isn't it? Grace comes freely, but grace transforms everything in a way that it'll feel at times like you've lost everything. And if we can buy into that identity, and I just want to let you know, point A of what I don't get. What exactly does it look like to buy into this identity? It's hard, guys. I, I don't entirely know. But I know when I hear echoes of it. I know, and I'll tell you a little story about Zoe. This is not from yesterday. This is when we first came out here to Ohio. When we met uh, with our kids and told them, not when I met my kids, but with, with the kids, talked to them about the fact that after the pastor's college, we were not going back to Philadelphia. We were instead going to go and enjoy being in Cleveland and had to show a map of where Cleveland was and what that meant and realize that, no, you will not be a half hour away from your friends uh, Josiah was fine. I think I've pointed that out before in a previous story. He was okay. Zach and Zoe were devastated. They had friends that they were leaving behind. They had those that were precious to them. They had a home and memories and, and the life that they were expecting to go back to and the church they were expecting to go back to. And after a year of being out here, Zoe came down the stairs. Well, actually, it was about a half a year because Zoe didn't know we were praying about staying and not going on to our next placement after being here. Zoe just came down the stairs and she said, Mom and Dad, I was, I was just thinking. She's, she's a little peanut at this point. And she comes down and she says, uh, I was thinking, our, our church in, in Pennsylvania is bigger. I said, yeah, yeah, it is. She goes, well, maybe we could just stay here and help this church get bigger. That's little Zoe saying for his sake and for the gospels, I'd be willing to leave my home and my brother, well, my brothers come with me, you know, no sisters in her case, and mother and father are there, but the, the land, the family, we're not close to grandma and grandpa. We're definitely not close to the other grandma and grandpa. And my parents at one point moved a little bit closer to Philly so we could be within a nice little day's drive. And right after they moved from South Carolina to North Carolina, I told them, thank you, we're moving from Philly to Cleveland. And they said, okay, whoever would lose children for my sake and for the gospel. Jesus says in chapter 8, that guy saved his life. Here, so far all we've got in the promise is the who, right? What's the promise, though? If we've identified who these people are, what's the promise? Well, let's hint at the promise. Other places that we've heard this in the Bible, I'm going to sort of give it away before we get Jesus' words, all right? Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, he said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted prophets who came before you. 
That's going to be part of the promise. Here's another thing that's going to be part of the promise. Paul, in Philippians 3, says, All of this that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's an echo of it as well from Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. I'm going to skip a slide and then come back to Peter, Isaac. Where Paul says, As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Peter says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, you you might be thinking at this point, wait a second, I heard Roman read this passage, and this isn't the what of the passage. This isn't the what of the promise. I get the who. Whoever's the loser, right? Whoever leaves things behind for Christ and for the gospel, that's the who. But what's the what? You just read me four passages about suffering. But I thought the promise was that you get stuff. You get stuff in this life, and you get stuff there. Yes. but it's actually a three-legged stool of a promise that's coming. The three-legged stool sounds more like this. Jesus said, truly I say, there's no one who's left all these things for my sake and for the gospel. Verse 30 picks up the what then? Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. I don't know where the dads went, but you know, it's just sort of summing up. First leg of the stool. You will receive some sense of replacement, it feels like, for those that you've lost and what you've lost in this life. One leg of the stool. Third leg of the stool. And in the age to come, eternal life. That sounds pretty good too. So if you give up everything, like Peter has done, for Jesus, to follow Jesus, then you will receive in this life some sort of replacement for what you have lost. And in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. Third leg of the stool. With persecutions. Because I don't like that. I like a two-legged stool right here. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to sit on a two-legged stool, but it works about as well as we theologically work in life whenever we try to make God have that promise. The two-legged stool promise, really unstable. I give up everything, and I get a great life now and an eternal life later. That sounds awesome. I want the two-legged stool, but I have watched the two-legged stool fall over, over, and over, and over again. The only thing that brings stability to this promise is the two words of the third leg with persecutions. Listen again now to the four passages I just read. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why? By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Rejoice insofar as you know Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. Now, total aside, related, but total aside. Because we stream the services, when we sing the songs, we usually have either two or three lines on the screen. Sometimes that really makes things hard grammatically. And I'm sure Michael's going to fix this for us. We'll find some way to get four lines back on the screen again. But you know, the two-line on the screen thing has kind of thrown me off. Here's why. And I I know that we'd mess up what we're doing if we went back to this. But we just sang this. In every season, we are satisfied. Right? In every season, we are satisfied. Right? One slide, two lines. Complete sentence, right? Next slide. For just one reason, Christ was crucified. Got to be honest. I'm the guy who blocked out those slides sometimes. You know what I've often thought the second slide meant? Christ was crucified for one reason. Makes sense, right? Put it all on one slide. I think we need those all on one slide, four lines together. Because I think it reads more like this. In every season, we're satisfied for just one reason, colon. Christ was crucified. That's the reason that in every season I can be satisfied. There's only one reason for it. Christ is crucified. That's it. And if that message captivates us, then there is current comfort and future hope. If that message and our dedication to the proclamation of that message captivates and shapes us, then there is current fellowship and future hope of greater fellowship. If we have this concept that suffering can be part of what God's greater plan is, then actually a gospel in which Jesus suffered makes sense. But how can we preach a gospel of a crucified Savior if we avoid suffering at all costs? If we interpret loss as God's lack of favor on our lives? That that doesn't make sense, does it? Jesus says, truly, amen, I say. Everybody who's lost and who's lost for my sake will gain this. Here's my promise. Something good in this life, something great in a future life, and some sense of fellowship over the suffering that is key to the message of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to proclaim Christ crucified anyway. How are you doing with the three-legged stool of the promise? Because that's the what. We the losers, we are stable when we're set on these three legs together. God will take care of you here. What exactly does that look like? I don't know. Caveat, right? A half-baked message. I don't know entirely what that looks like. Zoe lost the friends that she had in Philly. Jace didn't get revenge on this guy last night. He wanted to, but he follows Jesus, not his gut. But Zoe's made other friends. 
And there's ultimate reward in the self-control that God's building into Jace's life. And those are very two small, small examples. Otherwise, what in the world am I supposed to say to believers in Nepal who've lost their inheritance, who've lost their sense of standing in the world? What am I to say to them? Sorry, guess we screwed up. (laughs) Because you were supposed to follow Jesus and everything was supposed to go better. Because honestly, that's just the way it works for us in America. I just don't know why this didn't work in Nepal. I guess you guys just need a different gospel. I can't preach that. And I better not preach that here. But the fact that we have lived and preached that so much in the United States means that we are now exporting it in terrible quantities into other minds and souls and hearts of believers over there. But praise God, Tertha doesn't hold to this. I thank God that the churches that are coming out of that network, the churches that are being discipled by Finish the Mission and others. Now, let me just give you a few quotes. We're going to do some reading for a little bit. The first thing we're going to read is is from John Piper. John, thinking about this passage, says this. I cannot escape. I don't call him John, by the way. We don't talk. I don't know why. (laughs) Dr. Piper says the following. I cannot escape the impression that this is a rebuke. Peter, you speak of what you've left behind in order to follow me? Really? No, Peter. What you have left behind is as nothing compared to what you gain in following me. Don't you see, Peter, that if you think of Christian obedience in terms of loss rather than gain, you dishonor me. I did not call you to me because I am poor and need your sacrifices. I called you to me because I am all-powerful and all-wise, and I own everything in the universe. I have called you into my family as fellow heirs of all I have, and I am giving you eternal life, eternal joy with me in the presence of my Father. No, Peter, you have not made a sacrifice to follow me. Not any more than if you had sold your fishing boat to buy the finest hidden pearl. J.C. Ryle, a little, little older than John Piper. There are few wider promises than this one in the Word of God, and there is none in the New Testament which holds out such encouragement for this present life. Let everyone that is fearful and faint-hearted in Christ's service look to this promise. Let all who are enduring hardship and tribulation for Christ's sake sake study this promise well and drink of its comforts. They shall find in the communion of saints new friends, relations, and companions who are more loving, faithful, and valuable than any they had before their conversion. Their introduction into the family of God shall be an abundant recompense for exclusion from the society of this world. This may sound startling and incredible to many years, but thousands have found it by experience to be true. Or from a man named Daniel Nairi, who I just heard a podcast um, from the Gospel Coalition, who's interviewing him. He wrote a book called Everything Sad is Untrue. It's basically the story of his mom, an Iranian believer who had to do exactly what Jesus said. And in telling her story, he says this. People ask him, how can you explain why you believe anything? And in context, he's talking about why you believe this message of Christianity. And I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her. And she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? 
It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree a medical degree, and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. I tell you, I, I heard this little interview, I read this little quote, and man, I want to read his book. We'll put a link in the email. But the question at the end of it is, if that's the who and that's the what, it's just too good to be true, isn't it? But it feels too costly to really be believed. This is like asking somebody to take their life savings, take it out of the meager bit of investment that they've got, and make this promise to them. If you invest it, you will get 100 times more than what you invested in the first place. When I was a, a senior at college, um, our class took a um, took our, our our money, you know, that we had raised through the year. And every senior class gives a senior gift back to the school. And what we chose to do was part of what the finance team at Philadelphia College of the Bible was doing at that time, which was to invest in a company called New Era. It was uh, for those of you who remember this season. It was a scam that hit a lot of Christian organizations at the time. And my class has never yet given a gift to what is now Karen University. If you go back and look at our graduating class, we have no gift that has ever been given. What we were going to do, though, is we were going to take our money, we were going to invest it with the financial treasurers at the college, and in six months' time, it was going to double. And when it doubled, they were going to buy a video screen that they would put out in front of the university. And boy, wasn't that a really smart long-term investment, too, because everybody knows that 1990s technology would be radically on display at the university today. But we gave nothing because we lost it all. That happens so much in our, in our society. It's happened so much in our world. We know about Ponzi schemes. We know about pyramid schemes. We get the emails, and we have heard from the prince of Nairobi or wherever, and we've realized, like, wait, somebody's just trying to take my money. That's God. I got a chance to live a halfway decent life, and he wants to take that away. I, I'm not going to be everything, but I could be more than what I am if I'm following Jesus. You feel that? Great. You qualify for the promise. You understand that there's loss to be endured in this life in order to follow Christ? You get, don't get to do everything that you want? Great. You qualify for the promise. Do you understand the promise? Promises, you will get back way, way, way more than you lose. But you don't believe it. Because it violates the law of the jungle. It violates the principle that might makes right. It violates what we were just saying that we all have to confess in the very beginning, that we believe that God favors the strong, the rich, the powerful, and the famous. We believe that those in first place are in first place. And Jesus said, this is why the promise sticks. It's the why of verse 31. It's the basis of the promise. Many who are first will be last and the last first. 
If you haven't been catching this from Jesus, he's doing it all the time, isn't he? This is the way he's been encouraging us to live. Lose your sense of privilege and priority. Lose all the power that you think you've got and give it up for my sake. Give it up for the gospel. Lose it and you'll gain more. Why? Because this world is lying to you. The fact that you see some elevated above others, it is lying to you all the time. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet, I nearly slipped and I almost stumbled because I saw the prosperity of the wicked, Psalm 73. And I quote a psalm to let you know this isn't new with Jesus. It's just Jesus is the one giving it substance. Because before Jesus, everyone was living for first place all the time. Even the best of the kings who led the people of God in their heyday, King David, the man after God's own heart, took and possessed and killed and coveted because of what he wanted. He sought first place. At the end of his days, despite the warning of the prophet, don't number your soldiers, David. Don't figure out your power, David. Don't try to rank yourself, David. I get it. I hear the commandment and I hear the warning and I'm going to do it anyway. And it brought one of the worst scourges and plagues on the people of the past. And that's why Jesus came to say, this is the way that we live. Three times he said, the Son of Man is not coming to conquer when we get to Jerusalem. He's coming to die. And week after week after week, we've been hearing this, church. Week after week lately, Jesus has been addressing us from his words, saying, will you follow me because I'm going to my death? And the disciples are having to ask, what happens if we lose? And Sinclair Ferguson says it's so Beautifully. Christ has never been our debtor. That's his summary of the whole text. Christ has never been our debtor. So let me leave you with three things to consider as we just don't just think about this text, but we kind of unpack a couple chapters. Here's what it would mean in this race for last place. Three steps. First step. Look for those who seem to be less significant in the world's eyes and then embrace them. Don't figure out who the popular kids are, the powerful people. James says, if you see a poor person come into your church and you see a rich person come into your church and pay all the attention to the rich person, what in the world are you doing? You're just denying everything that we believe. That favoritism, it betrays everything. Jesus says, find the people less significant in the world's eyes and embrace them. And he said that in Mark 9. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of him and said, and taking him in his arms, embracing him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not him who sent me. You want to get a hug from God? Go hug someone who's not that significant. First step on the race to last place. Second step on the race to last place, look for those doing God's work, but who are on another team and then go support them. 
Don't figure out everybody who's just following your brand, following you, and kind of, you know, building you because one hand washes the other. No, go find somebody who's following God, but in supporting them, you get nothing in return and go support them anyway. Give to those who can't give back because Jesus said, do not stop him. Remember the context of this, Mark 9, just a chapter ago. Hey, Jesus, that guy was talking, he was doing this stuff, but he's not on our side. So we tried to stop him. Jesus said, don't stop him. For the one who's not against us is for us. Truly, I say, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see the punishment, or the, sorry, the punishment, <laughs> the promise that Jesus is making? Oh my goodness, you lost a cup of water. Yeah, you'll be rewarded for that. And if that's from the small to the great, if that's the least of the examples, then we got a little bit more than a cup of water we could give away to those doing God's work, right? Especially to those doing God's work who won't build Trinity's brand at all. Who can we support that are doing what God's called us to do? I mean, wouldn't it be great if by some point in our church's history, we were giving half of our income away to missions? We're at 20% now. We were talking over the last budget that we're actually giving more to... um, to, to foreign mission than we are to our own church ministry. And some of you leading church ministries are like, we know. Um, but here, this is the context for it. Like, let's do those sorts of things where we're giving more away, not because it builds our church, but because it just supports the kingdom. Let's race for last place among this broader community that we're in, in the international community we're in. Let's look for those doing God's work on another team and let's support them. And lastly... Let's look for those who are running to God without any hindrance and let's imitate them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Guys, let's not look and make our models those who are looking for glory and power and prestige today. Let's make our models, those who empty themselves of any self-importance, see God and want him and cherish him with everything. Make those people our examples. Let's follow those people. Let's find churches like that, communities and Christians like that. And let's just pour ourselves into building that up. Let's try to imitate these folks, support these kinds of folks, and let's try to embrace and receive the folks that God gives us. Why? Because if we finish in last place here, we win. Father, I thank you that these words have become so familiar to us over the years. And I thank you for how they're freshly familiar now. Lord, I thank you that you have been saying to us over and over that we ought to empty ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our crosses, that we ought to make childs of children of ourselves, that we ought to receive children, that we ought to look to support those who can't do anything for us. Father, these things are so hard for us. We get caught in the current and we get carried so far down the shore away from you. Thanks for pulling us back, calling us back. And I pray, Lord, keep us close to you. Keep us following you. And may we lose everything for the joy of gaining you. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I, the one thing I do want us to do is just to take a, a moment. Um, Michael and I were talking a while back just about how we pray in a church context. Sometimes I think we use prayer as transitional stuff, and that, I think that's, 
his, his point was really, really good. That when prayer just serves to allow movement to happen in the congregation, it's really defeating what everything the Bible says about prayer. So Keith's going to play a little bit, I'm, I'm sure, or tune a little bit so he can get ready to pray for us. Um, but let's, let's just take some time and pray here briefly. Let's not rush right into singing. Because uh, I think God's been trying to get our attention over some things. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, but let's, uh, if this message right now is half-baked, let's just kind of put it back in the oven for a little bit, set the timer, and um, Keith, will, Keith will lead us in song when it seems appropriate. But let's, let's let uh, the Holy Spirit do his work. Ask him uh, sort of from the words of the psalm, Lord, search me, try me, see if there be any anxious, errant way in me, and then lead me. Let's just pray that prayer now.